You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Tycho Hanrakon from University College Dublin entitled Mobility and the Evolution of Confessional Identity in Early Modern Ireland. Uh, first of all, I'd really like to thank the organisers and um, pay tribute to them uh, after 10 years because I think they really have done a, an absolutely wonderful job with Tudor and Stuart. And um, the manner in which that they, you know, that they, they developed a, an area where everybody could contribute, um, where you could bring work, um, really has been a magnificent addition to the, to, you know, to the timetable um, of, of the profession in Ireland. And it really is a huge credit to them. So... Um, uh, Now, the, the, the current paper, you, you know, grows from, from work which I did for the monograph, the, that last monograph, and it grew out of three things, really. One was work which I'd been doing on the periphery of Catholic Europe and the, the, the establishment of confessional identity where I was finding mobility everywhere. And the second, then, I suppose, was Lisbeth Corrin's very enabling concept of confessional mobility, which, um, you know, really got me thinking about the importance of mobility. And the third, then, would have been Nicholas Terpster's very interesting book on religious refugees and um, I suppose what I was trying to do was to explore the fact that over the last 30 years if you like the notion of early modern Europe as a fairly sedentary place has been replaced by the idea of enormous mobility so it's been estimated that in the early modern period over 100 million Europeans travelled across state borders um, now, that actually dwarfs, if you like, the million Europeans who could be considered religious refugees that Terpster was looking at. But it's probably also dwarfed. It's, it in itself is probably dwarfed by the hugely greater number of Europeans who probably undertook smaller migrations, which, given the context of you know, the infrastructure of travel and communication, actually represented a very large degree of personal cultural dislocation. So mobility, you know, uh, and I suppose when you start thinking about mobility, then for me as a religious historian, how did that link in with the extraordinary cultural change of the the Reformation uh, or the Reformations, um, looking at, 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 at the, the cultural and religious change which occurs in early modern Europe? So that's what I started thinking about and... Um, I, 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 what, what I was really trying to do in the book was to, to, to look at religious change in Ireland through the perspective of mobility, to use that as a, as a prism. And I, I suppose what I got there was that, for me, I think this is a useful hermeneutical term, ter, tool which could be used anywhere in Europe. But in Ireland, I, I really came up with five things. One was the importance of mobility and the training of clergy, the second was the intersection of confessional uh, identity and mobility that was not primarily motivated by religion. In other words, that how did religion play out in Ireland 
based on a mobility which was not primarily that, for instance, which Terpster looked at. Terpster looks at religious refugees, people who can be identified as religion being the major reason why they go into motion. But if we're looking at the hundreds of millions of Europeans, and in the case of Ireland, you know, the, the you know hundreds of thousands of people who are migrating or who are mobile, how did religion affect that? Um, I then wanted to do two things. One was look at figurative images of mobility. In other words, the importance of, 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 of metaphors and figurative images of mobility for the way that uh, early modern people structured their understanding of their religious life. Um, and, 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 and I suppose what I wanted to do with that was actually demonstrate that this is common to all the various confessions, which led me into the, the more important argument that in many ways it's practices of mobility rather than ideas which are more important in terms of forming um, identities. And then finally, and I don't think I'll have time to talk about that, was mobility and the generation of confessional identity texts in Ireland. Um, and the way that, you know, what can we do if we start looking at these as the product of migrant identities? So they were the perspectives which, which I wanted to have a look on the book. I won't have time to look at them all um, today, um, but uh, I, I, do want to, I do want to talk um, uh, a good deal about the first, which is, which, which is clergy. And I suppose one of the things which has come up to me is that, that there are differences about the, the, the attitude towards the importance of, 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 of clerical formation. For instance, Tom O'Connor, um, a scholar for whom I've got great respect, tends to you know wonder how much influence for instance did the Catholic clergy really have um, uh, you know how important are things like continental colleges um, and and I think that if you like it, it exposes a, a, a you know raises questions as you know what did the clergy do now I really believe that the formation of clergy is a hugely important aspect of the transformation of Europe in the period of the Reformation now, the clergy don't turn people, you know, Calvinism does not turn people into Jean Calvin or Theodore Bez. <laughs> um, Catholicism does not create Robert Bellarmines in every village. But it has a huge impact, in my view, what, 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 what the clergy do. And I don't think subsistence economies, you know, devote such a large amount of their resources to things which they think have no value which I think, again, relates also to what we had in the previous papers about the importance of you know, these material objects and the, the, the way that gift exchange is structured in that way. I think all over Europe what we find, for instance, is that um, post-Reformation clergies are very, very good about solidifying confessional identities so that we can find where you don't have post-Reformation educated clergy Clergies who are educated will make real headway. I, I was looking at that the, in the Balkans, for instance, where you have populations who are hungry for a more educated clergy who are essentially saying to Calvinist preachers or Lutherans or Catholic priests that missionaries, if you stay with us, we will be of your confession. So they are extremely good at that. In my view, is in that in, in, in one of the most important things which clergy do is that they, if you like, act as vaccines. <laughs> you know, kind of Catholics get in in a certain area or Protestants get in in a certain area, they make it very, very difficult to change that. It can be done, but it takes coercion, it takes consistency, it takes an educational apparatus, it takes a huge effort to do that. Now, Ireland is really, really important, um, and therefore, for me, 
what I would suggest that the clergy are, if you like, the capstone of the maintenance of confessional identity in early modern Europe. Ireland is actually unique in the transnational formation of three different clergies. And that's, it seems to me, to be uh, um, a, a very important thing because I don't think that Ireland could have sustained three different major confessional structures, which is Catholicism, the established church, and Protestant dissent. Uh, most of all, Ulster Presbyterianism. Without the, uh, without the possibility of having educated clergy, but what is really significant is when we start looking at those is that the character of those clergy have a pronounced transnational uh, dimension. And Catholicism, of course, as the majority religion, um, is, is, is of particular importance in this regard because Catholicism in Ireland disrupts what could be called the Holy Trinity of uh, early modern confessionalisation. In other words, you know, the classic idea of confessionalisation is that there are mutually reinforcing processes of religious reform, social discipline and state building. That those processes mutually support each other. In Ireland, Catholicism certainly ticks the box of social discipline, it ticks the box of religious reform, but it does not tick the box of state building. And that's of real, real importance in that regard. So what is the importance of mobility um, with regard to, 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 to Catholicism in Ireland? Well, I think it is demonstrable, at least I tried to demonstrate, demonstrate it at, 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 at great length, um, is that throughout the 17th century, positions of religious leadership within Catholicism are given to continentally educated clerics. In other words, the, the way that Catholic religious reform is mediated in Ireland is through a leadership. Not the entirety, but the leadership consistently is given to the most educated clergy. So bishops are universally educated on the continent. Vicars apostolic, universally educated on the continent. Vicars foreign, the deans, the ones who are responsible for the individual deaneries and therefore who have oversight over clerics are almost invariably educated on the, on the continent. Individuals within the, 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 the organisation of the um, secular clergy within the the, uh, within a diocese, again, such as archdeacons, they are almost always continentally educated clergy. So what we get across over a century, the century that I was looking at between 1585 and, and, and 1685, is the uh, emergence in Ireland of an articulated network of clergy who are continentally educated. And one of the things which they do that which is that they consistently prioritise Catholicism above the other aspects of their identity. That is one of the things which um, is, is, is a driver. Very importantly, they're drawn from across the ethnic spectrum of the island. And that is also hugely important, that the, the, you know, the Catholic Reformation in Ireland is not something which is just driven by old English clergy, but in Gaelic areas it is driven by Gaelic clergy. Uh, and very importantly, except during the 1650s, they are not subject to sustained and effective um, uh, coercion. And what I suggest is that the sheer numbers of clergy in that regard produce a critical mass. They're not isolated individuals, but they are a consistent, numerically significant cohort. 
in general, they do not encounter resistance internal to their communities. So you get odd examples, for instance, in the late 1640s, which I've looked at, where Old English laity and some Old English clergy, for instance, um, really mount a significant intellectual resistance to, um, uh, to the basic clerical consensus here, which is centred around the papal nuncio. That's a, an isolated example. Most of the time, for instance, where you have clergy, not surprisingly, objecting to the reforming efforts of continental clergy who don't like being picked up on their concubinage, who don't like being picked up on their lack of education, who don't like being picked up for their gambling or for their drinking, uh, and who will go to the state courts, indeed, to try to resist uh, the disciplining effects of their, of, of, of their superiors. We find that their superiors get the support of the local Catholic population, whether it's laity or whether other clergy in that regard. Now, how important is the fact, one of the things which we do have to recognise is that what Catholic clergy are getting abroad is in many ways quite similar to what you get with other clergies, for instance, in France. That, you know, the, the formation of, 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 of clergy in early modern Europe does involve a process of dislocation from the localities. In other words, all over Europe, you will find that there is a conscious attempt to abstract uh, a clergy from their environment, to put them into a university environment, to imbue them with particular notions before sending them back, so that the creation of distance, if you like, um, uh, to, to make them effective agents of, uh, from their localities, to make them effective agents of, of reform, is something which does occur all over Europe. But in Ireland, there is a heightened aspect of this. And one of that is, which is really, really important, of course, is that they are being abstracted from the kingdom. They are being put into a very different... And in a sense, the English throne will recognise this in 1795 with Maynooth, that there is a greater advantage to training the clergy within Ireland than there is to having them trained outside. The other th point, I, I suppose, is that you are moving people from what is uh, you know, um, a, a relatively isolated um, and, and, and economically backward part of the European continent, and at a particularly formative time of their lives, you are bringing them into contact with the centres, some of the richest centres of Catholic Europe, about that. And the effect, it's, it seems to me, is that it, it, it creates a, a sense of inconsistency between uh, the notion of the claims of English superiority um, uh, 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 and their attachment to their religion which I think is of enormous, of enormous and enduring um, importance. So it's, these mobility flows, these, the fact that Ireland has, uh, and again, one of the, the most interesting things about the, the, the Irish Continental Colleges, the, that articulated network, is that they are created by those mobility flows. The Roman Church is actually very, very poor about setting up continental, about setting up colleges. So if we look at the Balkans, for instance, the Loreto College is a massive failure in terms of servicing the, the Catholics of the Balkans. Um, the Roman Church is remarkably ineffective about servicing the very large numbers of Catholics who remain in 16th and 17th century Norway or Sweden. Remarkably ineffective. Um, the 
two most successful areas in terms of maintaining a Catholic population in Partibus Infidelium uh, are in the Netherlands, where again it is the flow from the Netherlands to the two training colleges, um, and Ireland. England to a certain extent, but it's the English Catholics are far, 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 far less numerous, even though they're much richer. So uh, those flows are one of the reasons why Ireland will take the, you know, those and, and, the, and the self-agency of the Irish in creating that network and the flow back and forth between Ireland is one of the reasons why Ireland, Irish Catholicism has, 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 has a different profile. The second thing I think which is very, very interesting is the locality. In other words, what we find in Ireland is that priests who go abroad for training will tend to return to their diocese of origin. So, for instance, if we take Ardfert, what we'll find uh, among the priests is that names like O'Sullivan, like O'Hussey, like O'Connell are constantly being repeated here. Um, of those who are continentally educated, who have gone abroad, but who are returning to their places of origin, which is mean, means that they are actually centred um, uh, and at work in their local population. So it is this peculiar com combination of the transnational flow and the local dimension, um, which, uh, which is very important. Now, the contrast with the Church of Ireland, and a Church of Ireland which you know, is remarkably successful in, 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 in servicing an immigrant community, but which is remarkably unsuccessful as an evangelical tool, is very striking. Um, the, the, the leadership the idea of the leadership, in, in, if, we, if we look at the top level of the Church of Ireland, what we find in actual fact is uh, an extraordinary degree to which they are not the formation. They are not formed in Ireland. In 1625, three out of 23 bishops are Irish-born. Only one of them is a Trinity graduate. And even on into the reign of Charles II, where you've got an established seminary to train clergy, where you have a, a definite Protestant identity which has emerged in Ireland, which has had um, you know, really important formative events, such as 1641. What you find is that out of the 52 Episcopal appointments, 32 are to English, Scots or Welsh. That there are only, only 16 capitular appointments during the restoration to individuals of Gaelic origin. You know, the work which I've do, done here, you know, there is a marked contrast, for instance, with the Catholicisation of places like Poland or Bohemia. In Poland or Bohemia, what you get is that you get exactly this. You get the arrival of, many, in many cases, Italian or Spanish immigrants to set up colleges. But within one generation, what you have is that you have Czechs and Poles who are moving in to take over those positions of leaderships. And... One of the things which I would suggest is that there is a marked lack of ecclesiastical patriotism on the part of the uh, English clergy in Ireland, and particularly that leadership. That um, uh, sense of commitment to their diocese, commitment to the idea of a kind of historical identity of their diocese, commitment to the furnishing of their churches, of their residences, that sense of them being in a chain a linked ecclesiastical chain leading, uh, leading back. One of the interesting elements about that is the extraordinary rate of translation within the Protestant hierarchy. In other words, two minutes, is it? So I'm going to, I'm just going to finish up on this, that translation, um, which is, uh, is extremely common within 
so that people move into a starter diocese and then they move into a different metropolitan province and then into another one. Uh, and so there is a, 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 real, a, a real passage through that. That's almost unknown in Catholicism. The only translations which occur in Catholicism are when a bishop is translated to a metropolitan see. And then finally, I'm just going to um, say, say that Presbyterianism, which is the most enduring form of, of, of dissent, is only conceivable as surviving within Ireland on the basis of a consistent ministerial cohort. And that cohort is exclusively formed in Scotland. So without those Scottish universities prov providing, providing that raw material, we are not going to get the situation um, which we see um, with, with the remarkable. And the Presbyterian cohort in Ireland um, is, 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 is remarkably successful. Um, as an immigrant church moving, because w w the way that Presbyterianism spreads in Ireland is that as the community develops, they ask for ministers. And it is only when the community has reached a certain critical mass that it can ask a minister to come to minister to them. And that is the process about which it, which, uh, uh, about which it's, uh, which it spreads and proves to be remarkably successful. And Ulster Presbyterianism is remarkably um, is completely dependent on this pipeline. And one of the things which is most interesting about Ulster Presbyterianism is the contrast with the with the variety of sects which emerge in the 1650s in Ireland, because essentially they attenuate. With the single uh, exception of the Quakers, what we get is a, a remorseless attenuation of Protestant sects in uh, Restoration Ireland and on into on into the 17th century. That would have left me into my next point, which is about practices, but I'm going to call a halt to it. <laughs> okay? Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify.